Welcome to Industry Roundtable with Roger Reiswick. I'm Roger Reiswick, Fellow and Vice President of Industry Relations at Johnson Controls. In this series, I will host leaders in the industry to explore fire and life safety issues that matter to you. For today's topic for Industry Roundtable, we will discuss UL, Underwriters Laboratory, and the listing process for products, specifically those for life safety. My guest today is Mr. Neil Lakomiak. Uh, Neil is a business development director in the Building and Life Safety Technologies Division for Underwriters Laboratory. Welcome to Industry Roundtable, Neil, and thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, Roger. It's it's my pleasure to be here, and I was honored to be asked to be on this podcast, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, Neil, I guess before we start out and go too much into our topic today and we, we talk about uh, the listing process, maybe if you could give us, our audience, an understanding of uh, maybe what you do at UL and what business development entails um, so we can just know a little bit more about you. Sure thing. Yeah, so I lead business development for UL's Building and Life Safety Technologies Division. Uh, UL's, like most companies, are organized by divisions and, and units, so Building and Life Safety Technology resides in the retail and industry business unit for UL. And uh, for business development, I focus primarily on acquisitions, partnerships, uh, working with clients to help them get new and innovative products to market. And it's really kind of a future-looking role, and uh, it's cultivating opportunities and initiatives that are are really forward-thinking, looking out five-plus years and uh, so that's where I spend most of my time. I've actually been at UL 20 years, really my whole career. First real job out of college, started out as a technician. I graduated with an electrical engineering degree. And uh, like most engineers at UL, we start out as technicians for a year, and then, then we move into more of the engineering things. So I've, I've been in various different engineering roles for 10 years, managed our principal engineers for a period of time, our engineering operations uh, really all within the life safety and security industry. So I grew up around fire alarm control systems and security systems. And then uh, I've been in a business development capacity for about 10 years. So it's been a lot of fun. It's really interesting to see how the various different industries are, are changing because of digital and software and connectivity and all that. Oh, that's great. And in my dealings with UL, it's it's always been pressed me that many of the people there have kind of grown up, if you will, into the position that they're at, where they've started out in the field or doing the technician type of work and then migrated into other aspects. And it just seems invaluable, you know, when you're talking with somebody about these life safety products and for them to have the depth and the breadth of the, of the knowledge. So uh, that's fantastic. What types of products does UL have listings for, and how far does that really reach out into our everyday lives? Yeah, you know, it, it's quite extensive. Um, just some, maybe some background. So UL is celebrating our 125th anniversary this year, and uh, we got our start at the turn of the 19th century. Chicago had the World's Fair, and electricity was the big exhibit. So think about light bulbs and conductors and switches and, and things of that nature, so people didn't know a lot about electricity and, and some of the safety implications around that. And so there were some incidents at the World's Fair, and our founder, William Henry Merrill, who worked for Boston Insurance Company, was called in to understand this new electricity thing and what some of the risks were going to be. And so, you know, we really got our start around 
looking at electrical safety of products. And so really the scope of, of what UL does in terms of products and industry, it, it's seemingly like everything. Um, I, I actually, I, you know, I joke, I, I learn something new probably every week that we do. And so whether it's consumer products, you know, like a smoke alarm or a PlayStation toasters all the way through to commercial fire alarm control systems, smart grid, PV panels, uh, wind turbines, HVAC equipment. We've, we've got our, our mark on just about all of those different types of products and, and systems. And the core of UL has always been kind of focused on safety of those products and, and systems. But depending upon the particular product, the particular industry, there are other factors that we've always looked at. Uh, you know, the, the industry that you know well, Roger, life safety, you know, you really need to make sure that those products and systems do what they're intended to do. And so the scope of, of the work that we do at UL also includes things like performance, reliability, cybersecurity, and we're even in areas around sustainability. So looking at building materials for their impact on the environment and, and, and things like that. So the scope of what we do has is, is grown um, dramatically over those 125 years. So I guess the, the summary is that I feel like we're in every industry and our mark is on thousands and thousands of different products and systems. Yeah, and we do see that across a lot of various industries, the UL logo or the emblem. You know, and I do a lot of work outside of the U.S. around the globe, and UL is known uh, worldwide when we talk about something that's listed to UL. You know, but when you say that, I guess maybe we need to back up a little bit for our listeners. What does it actually mean, though, when we say that a product or a thing has a UL listing? What does that mean to a, a person? Yeah, it's a really good question because there's there's definitely nuances around the idea of certification, right? And so when you hear listed, the history on that goes back to an actual list that was kept of products that have been evaluated, have been certified to a particular standard. So the idea that, let's just say, my terminal block is listed, it's on a list of, of products that have been evaluated to an industry standard, and it's a confirmation that that product meets that standard and those requirements. And so you're on a list. Uh, so that's where that terminology kind of came from. Um, today, it, it's it's really thought of more universally as, as certification that, again, whether it's a product or a system or a person even or a process, that it's, it's certified. It, it meets a particular set of requirements and that's validated by some third party. So that, that's where that word listed comes from. And uh, today we have a, we call our certification directory. It's actually branded product IQ, um, where you can go in and you can search for and see what products and systems are actually certified to any, any given kind of a standard. So um, that's the idea there. So what started out as a list, I'm sure, you know, paper and, and pen is now a big uh, electronic uh, database with all kinds of, of different information on it. So that's definitely evolved over the course of time. But I think the listed is not necessarily unique to UL. There are other, other agencies that do some of the things that we do, uh, but that's just kind of the terminology from our history. But I think the way to look at it is a product is, is certified as kind of a more universal term. 
that when you talk about learning something new, I didn't know that that's where the listing thing came from. That's really fascinating to me, you know, as somebody that deals with this stuff on a, on a daily basis. So um, I really appreciate that. So when a product becomes listed or certified, does that listing have like an expiration date or a time limit from UL? Or how does that work? So the way that, that we work and, and most other certification organizations work is is that when a product meets the requirements of, of a standard um, and is eligible to be certified, that manufacturer has the authorization from that company to apply their mark, their certification mark. And, and so doing the initial testing and certification work to confirm that it meets the standard is, is sort of step one. And then they have the ability to apply the mark to their product. Um, could be a sticker, could be uh, printing on a packaging. And uh, they have the ability to use that mark in, in perpetuity, provided that they continue to meet the requirements. So the idea of, of somebody having the authorization to use the, the UL mark on their product is intended that they uh, have ongoing compliance. And so part of our certification programs include what we call follow-up surveillance, where we actually have UL people in the field that are going into manufacturing facilities and doing a check and, and sort of validating that, yep, this is the same product that we tested in our labs. It's still being made the same way. And so carry on. You could continue to apply the UL mark to the product. Now, the requirements, the standards, uh, let's call them, that are used to evaluate, um, sort of define what that product needs to meet in terms of safety, performance, reliability, those change over the course of time. And so when a standard changes, um, we have to you know, do an assessment to understand, okay, well, what's the difference between the previous edition and this new edition, and how would that impact the certification of, of that particular product? And so we do an assessment when a standard changes. We make that determination. And there's a period of time in there in which a manufacturer has to, um, if, if those changes to the standard require them to maybe redesign or change their product in some way, or maybe they, they automatically meet those requirements, that uh, um, some changes to a standard could be minor and that uh, an existing product that's being manufactured already meets those requirements. Uh, but we do an assessment along with our client, the manufacturer, to confirm that. And once it's confirmed that they meet those revised requirements, so let's say you're going from edition three to four uh, with a standard, then they're able to, to carry on and, and apply that mark. Now, let's say, for instance, the standard changes, you have an already listed product, and that product uh, no longer meets that new set of requirements, the manufacturer would have the option to remove that listing, you know, no longer manufacture the product or, or it's their prerogative to use the UL mark or, or not if they, if they don't meet the, the requirements. But that mark on a product signifies that it does meet the, the latest requirements. So, so there is sort of a maintenance part of the certification. It's not kind of a, a one-and-done situation. So a product that I manufacture, let's say today, it meets the current requirements, and I, I put the mark on it at my manufacturing facility, and then I ship it out to the end user. And then next week, a revised standard comes out, and I need to retool to meet that new standard. The product that I sent out last week still has its UL listing. Does that ever uh, lose that listing and 
would that become you know, null and void? Uh, we have some products we're going through that right now within our marketplace, particularly smoke detectors, uh, where yes. we have a new standards. There's a lot of questions about that. So if a product that I made today and meets the requirements today, and then I ship it today, uh, does that lose its listing? No, it, it doesn't. Um, and so it, I'll draw an analogy to building codes. And so let's, let's say you're building a, a home, a single-family residential home, and uh, you're going to build it to whatever the latest code requirements are uh, for that given year or years that it, it takes you to build your home. Now, the, the codes are going to continue to evolve and, and change and be upgraded. You know, you're not required to go back and, and make sure that your home always complies with the latest edition of the codes. That would just be impractical. I mean, it'd be very costly to do that and logistically be very impractical. And so uh, similar is true with products. So the idea is that a product that is deployed at any given time and installed and is, you know, is, is being used, it met the current requirements at the time. And so even though those requirements may change and evolve over time, it doesn't necessarily invalidate that certification for that particular product. So it's it's understood that at the time it was deployed and installed, it met the requirements. Now it's, you know, depending on the end user, the building owner, manager, or whatever, I mean, it's their prerogative. If they see the value in changing out those products or systems and, and, and putting in new ones because they meet the latest and greatest requirements, that's their prerogative. But there's really nothing um, from a legal standpoint or anything else that would force them to have to do that. Okay. So let me throw out a question to you that we hear a lot in the field, and somebody will say, be careful with that. You're going to void the UL listing. Can a product's listing be voided by a person that does something in the field to the equipment? There's a difficult answer to that, and I'm not sure what the right terminology is or should be when we talk, you know, voided the listing, because it's on the product, right? It's, it's, it's le- it left the factory. Um, we confirmed and the manufacturer confirmed that, yes, it meets the current requirements when it left the factory. And then it goes and it's installed and it's deployed and commissioned and put into use in the field. So it, it really, it's dependent upon the product. So, um, you know, for certain products and systems, not only do we look at the physical product, you know, evaluating it, testing it, but we're also looking at all the markings on the product. So there could be special warning markings, rating information. We look at uh, the documentation for a particular product, especially a life safety product. And so all of that content, whether it's markings or, or documentation, how the product is being marketed, uh, what's on the manufacturer's website, that's all part and parcel of the UL certification because we do review all of that because it's important. So if there's somebody making a particular claim about the performance of a product, assuredly, that's going to be part of the scope of our investigation is to validate that claim that, yes, this product actually does what's being claimed by that manufacturer. So so that all falls within the scope of that certification. So it's not just the product, it's all the associated content as well. And so certainly, um, depending upon the complexity of the product or system, there may be a user manual, uh, installation manual, a programming manual that kind of defines how the product's to be used and installed and programmed. And so as long as they're using it in how those 
documents define it, then everything is good. Now, if somebody, let's say, for example, were to take a product and interface it with other products, in the case of a life safety product, one of the concerns there would be compatibility. You know, so if I have a fire alarm control panel, I'll just use that because it's very familiar to both of me and Roger here. Um, if you take a fire alarm control panel, you don't necessarily have the ability to use any and every kind of smoke detector out there um, with that control panel. There is a process uh, by which you evaluate the compatibility of that smoke detector with that fire alarm control panel. And so that has to be tested. That has to be evaluated and so if somebody is connecting a smoke detector that hasn't been evaluated for use with that fire alarm control panel, you could technically say, well, you're really utilizing that product outside of the scope of the certification. So whether the right terminology is, hey, you avoided the certification, you're really creating a situation of, of doubt or uncertainty because you really don't know unless it's been evaluated whether or not that device is compatible with that fire alarm control panel. So um, so you really have to look at the context in which the product is being used, what are the guardrails that are defined by the installation, the user manuals that say what you can connect to it, how you can use it and program it, that all defines it. So at the end of the day, it's really uh, the responsibility of the end user. Uh, it could be a regulatory authority, an HJ, uh, an inspector that could be involved to do that sort of final validation um, that things are as they should be when it's installed and deployed or if it's updated or changed or added on to in the future, that's more of a, a field issue that needs to be addressed by the people that are responsible for that. So UL doesn't necessarily go out and validate an installation um, is installed properly, but those things are performed by by other people. So so yeah, it's it's a common question that comes up, and it's and it's often a difficult one. Some people, as a follow-on question, might ask, "Well, does it not meet the requirements?" Then, if I'm doing something that's outside the scope of the certification, and the answer is always, "We don't know," because we can't say yes that complies, and we can't say no it doesn't until you actually do that assessment. So, so that's it's just kind of a question mark, I, I guess, if you will. If if there's something that is is done changed, modified, that's outside the scope of the certification, you really don't know until it's evaluated. I like the guardrail analogy, you know, where it kind of keeps you in the lane, because uh, oftentimes I will reply to it to say, well, we haven't tested it for that type of application or that type of installation, and kind of keep them in that, in that lane with, with the guardrail. So I, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that one going forward. All right. Yeah, it may work just fine, right? It may be perfectly fine, no issues at all but it may not be covered by the scope of certification. So sometimes that's like simple, just like paperwork job. Okay, we're going to add some information to our installation and user manual that covers that, and uh, that then becomes you know, part of their certification. So it would be like a simple you know, update to a manufacturer's file, their certification with UL. Yeah, oh, that's a great point. Well, so we've talked a little bit about products, and you've alluded a little bit to services and other things. So does UL offer other listings that aren't necessarily for products, but for certain types of services or an operation for a company? 
Yeah, we do. And I'll give a few examples. And this is a particular area that's interesting to us. Um, We seem to be drawn into more and more opportunities uh, in this particular space where companies are providing managed services. So so I'll, I'll cite a couple examples. One uh, could be for alarm companies. So we, we actually certify alarm companies. And what we're doing there is we're evaluating the alarm company's ability to install and maintain systems. Could be fire alarm system, could be intrusion detection. And what we do is we have a standard that defines the criteria for an alarm company, and we evaluate that alarm company to that criteria. And so uh, just to walk through it a little further, you may have an alarm company that is looking to be certified by UL. So we would evaluate their ability and their processes to install and maintain an alarm system. So some of the things we would do is that we would we would go in and we would look at their credentials. We would look at their records. You know, so if they're monitoring a system, we'll look at the different records and data coming out of that to make sure that they're capturing, let's say, for example, alarm signals and trouble signals and, and how they're responding to those. Um, we'll go in the field with them and we'll go to a site where a system has been installed and we'll do an, an evaluation and validate that that system has been installed properly in accordance with the standard. Um, and so that alarm company, through having that certification, looking at their process, looking at their people, um, looking at their deployed systems, they have an ability to uh, actually issue the UL mark in a sense. So as they deploy and install systems in other locations, jewelry stores, pharmacies, uh, commercial buildings, then they have the ability to issue a UL certificate for a given uh, facility and it's declaration that that facility meets the UL requirements. And so we do audits uh, on an annual basis. Where we're validating that the work that they do, the service that they provide is meeting the set of requirements a couple other examples include um, we have a, a fire stop contractors program where we have a um, process by which we're able to evaluate the service being provided by fire stop contractors. So these are the, the companies that go out and uh, are uh, sealing up uh, penetrations through fire resistive walls and, and things. So it's, it's, it's intricate work in, in some circumstances. And so that industry came to us and and asked if we could create a program for them whereby we would evaluate that service being provided by those contractors. And so they have to take an exam. So there's there's training content uh, that we offer. We proctor the exam. Um, So it's it's basically a check of their knowledge of fire stop systems and, and installation and maintenance of those systems. And then we also go in the field and look at their work product and validate that, in fact, yeah, they are doing all the things prescribed by the program. Um, you know, a full company has the ability to become a certified fire stop contractor. And so that's more of a service-oriented uh, business. And then finally, I'll mention that we certify risk professionals so we, we can certify people. Um, and that's a similar approach there as well. It's uh, the insurance industry asked if we could work with them to create such a program for risk professionals that work uh, in the insurance industry. 
And so there's a path of you know, taking training, and then uh, there's an exam that, that they would take. And if they pass the exam with a certain score, then they get that designation. We, we, we offer them this uh, UL certified risk professional designation, and, it, and it's a credential for them. It validates their knowledge and their, their working understanding and knowledge of risk as, as it applies to an insurance industry. So, um, so those are just some examples. And I, I expect that this will be an, an, an area where we'll, we'll do more and more work in because there seems to be a strong need for that. So, so not just the products, but also the people installing the products. Uh, there seems to be a need for that as well. Yeah, it's a great offering that, that UL has, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. And you know, we, we verify that the products meet a certain level of functionality and how they're going to operate you know, as intended. And recognizing the company and or the individual that's doing the work, you're kind of pulling it all together to help raise that bar a little bit for the end user to understand that what they're getting is a complete package too, right, you know, not just the equipment. Because you can have the best equipment, but if it's not installed properly or not maintained properly, um, it, it might not function as it needs to. So, um, I, yeah, I that's, that's an excellent summary, Roger. Yep. So as we talk about uh, you know products and listings, um, products need to be listed for their intended purpose within NFPA 72, the National Fire Alarm and Signaling Code, for example. We're required to have products that are listed to the UL standards. And I guess if we could back up a little bit, how are standards created? What is the process for something like that to come about? Creating a standard really in, involves getting a group of, of stakeholders together that, that have a desire to standardize something. Um, again, could be the performance, safety, and reliability of a product, could be a service, you know, as, as we've discussed and so the, the process that we utilize at, at UL follows the ANSI standards development process. It's the American National Standards Institute, and uh, they're kind of the overseer, if you will, kind of a facilitator of standards uh, in the U.S., um, and what they attempt to do is um, coordinate standards development activities and prevent things like overlapping scopes of standards, really. If, if you're going to have a standard, you really want to avoid, you know, multiple different organizations creating very similar standards around the same scope. And so that's a very important piece uh, of the process. But also, being an ANSI standards developer signifies that you used a, a very particular process to develop that standard. Um, things that are important are you know, making sure that you have a balanced technical committee. Uh, so the individuals that are volunteering to uh, provide their knowledge to help write those requirements, to help write that standard, um, you really want to have a balanced set of individuals. You don't want to have, you know, all installers, uh, for example. You don't want to necessarily have all uh, regulatory authorities that are creating those requirements. Really, You really need a diversity. You need to look at the whole kind of value chain for any given product or system, and really want as many of those stakeholders uh, at the table as you can, because they're all going to bring a piece of information to the table that's important, um, that needs to be considered when developing a standard. And so it's, it's really a group of, of stakeholders uh, getting together to uh, define the scope of, of what they want to establish and what they want to standardize. 
and then doing the very uh, iterative work of determining, um, you know, what those requirements ought be. And, um, you know, there's different levels of complexity for standards, many different flavors and scopes of, of standards. But uh, as long as you follow the ANSI process and you have a balanced technical committee and you have certain uh, procedures in place and how you vote uh, and, and how requirements are codified, then you can claim that you have uh, an American national standard that was developed through a consensus process. So sometimes this can take many months, if, if not years. It really depends upon, uh, well, there's a variety of factors that it depends upon, you know, the complexity of the topic. It could be a contentious issue, as an example, um, where there's big differences of, of opinion on certain things. And so it's definitely an iterative process, and, and it can sometimes take uh, quite a while, depending upon the subject matter. So it's interesting you talk about stakeholders and uh, different types of people to participate. You, know, you were looking for end users, um, AHJs, fire marshals, um, engineers, obviously, special experts. But it really is a document that's created from a consensus then. It's not something where some people might think that it's a, a couple of UL engineers sitting in a closet somewhere figuring out what the standard's going to be. Uh, it really is the industry coming together to help create that. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, most standards are developed in that fashion. That's the preferred method uh, because you've really uh, been able to incorporate lots of different points of view and expertise into all that. And you also have, you get buy-in. That's probably the other, other biggest part here as well, is that because you had all that diversity of, of individuals at the table weighing in, you get that much more buy-in and credibility for that particular standard. So it's very valuable method. Uh, it works. It, it does take time. It can be arduous at times, but it produces a, a really good product. Thanks for quoting all that together, because I think it's been you know, kind of a mystery as I talk with people around, around the globe. So uh, along with that, let's just take a little bit of time and uh, maybe talk about maybe an active process that's going on right now, uh, area of refuge system, uh, area of rescue assistance. There's been um, an initiative within NFPA to start to require more of these systems, but also for them to be uh, listed to some type of a criteria. And... There has not been one up until recent that we've been able to, as manufacturers, have a product listed to. So there is a new, I believe it's UL2525, uh, called Outline of Investigation for Rescue Assistance, Two-Way Emergency Communication Systems for Stairwell and Elevator Landing Lobby Areas of Refuge. It's a big title. But yes. um, I, note, I note that it's an outline of investigation. So how does an outline differ from a standard, or what's, the, what's that process? So another way in which to develop standards is, you know, to do it in a, in a non-consensus fashion. So this often arises when there are new and innovative products uh, or systems that, that come onto the market. And this happens daily. Um, where we have the fortune of having new clients or even existing clients come to us with new and innovative products that have a desire um, to get a certification and in many cases, um, there may not be a standard that exists or the criteria that exists to evaluate that particular product or system uh, in order to offer a certification. Um, oftentimes, we're creating something new, really, from, from scratch. Um, 
there was a point in time, really not too long ago, where there wasn't a standard for smoke alarms back in the 60s and 70s, where it uh, was a very immature industry, yet there were manufacturers that were producing uh, solutions and products. And so there was a need to create a standard for those products and be able to offer certification. And so where you have technology that's moving a lot faster than we, or even just the industry at large, can develop standards, can develop codes, we as a company, as, as a standards development organization, in some of those instances, have made a decision to develop a non-consensus standard. And, and we happen to call them outlines of investigation. It's, it's not a universal term. It's more kind of ULEs, if you will, UL terminology. Uh, but it's to signify that it's, it's, it is something different than a consensus-based standard. Outlines of, of investigation are, are not ANSI-approved standards. Uh, they are considered non-consensus standards. And in most cases, when we have a need to develop those, we still draw people from outside of UL experts in to help us create that because um, we don't know everything and we, we don't have all the knowledge to be able to address different attributes and aspects of, of a given product. So the advantage of doing an outline investigation is really it's all about speed. If you have a code, for example, NFPA 72 that's on a three-year cycle um, or even trying to develop a consensus standard, it could take many, many months, and I, and I'm, I said even years, even many years. And so the market may not be able to wait that long. Technology is moving a lot faster these days, and, it's, and we're going to continue to see this a lot faster than we can develop codes and standards on a consensus basis. And so if we have the wherewithal, we have the expertise, the capability, and the knowledge to develop a new standard for a new product or a new system, we'll do it. Um, we look at each of these as its own separate business case, and we, we look at it in terms of public safety, public good, and there's times where there's kind of what seem to be emergency-type situations where technology solutions are needed, yet there's not a standard that exists to, to validate those. So, um, so we really need to have this lever to be able to move quickly to develop a certification solution, a standard and a certification program to certify these products. Now, the intent with every outline of investigation or non-consensus standard is to still get it on that track, right? We, we, we still want to and have a desire to have that outline become a consensus standard, but that will have to take its course. Um, but in the interim, we'll have an outline that we can use to certify products um, that become available to the market. So, so it's, it's really about timing is, is really all that drives this need to have a different lever to pull aside from the formal consensus-based uh, standards development process. And, and even NFPA has a process for dealing with this. Um, I think they have uh, what they call provisional standard uh, where they are able to do certain things and even a code for that matter in kind of emergency situations and, and are able to accelerate the development process. So, and, and I, again, as technology changes, things become more dynamic. I think there's going to be more and more pressure to uh, develop standards and standardize things 
in a more rapid fashion. So there, there are a variety of other things that we're doing at UL to see how we can accelerate that process and at the same time keep or improve uh, the level of integrity around those standards and, and the involvement of uh, stakeholder groups to participate in those. Uh, that's that's great how you wrapped all that together. And um, yeah, so a product can meet some type of a listing criteria, I wouldn't say rather rather quickly, maybe not as quickly as everyone would like, but rather quickly than going through the, the whole multi-year process. You know, as technology is changing so much or new things come on, on scene, whether it's for cybersecurity or for this for area of refuge, we're able to get products listed. And then once that, um, you know, kind of gets the ball rolling, I've been involved in a few of these, and it seems like the process works rather well, uh, going from an outline to a full standard, and it gets that ball rolling for that, uh, that committee to come together you know, so we can get product listed and out the door. So. Well, Neil, I just want to really thank you a lot for your time today, for your in-depth knowledge and uh, explaining to our listeners uh, a lot of information, a lot of basic questions that we get asked uh, almost like on a daily basis. So I, I really do appreciate your time and uh, to share your knowledge with us. Well, it's been my pleasure, Roger, and I'm, I'm honored to have been asked to have this conversation with you. So hopefully what we covered today is uh, is valuable to your audience and and maybe uh, gives them a little bit more background on some of these uh, questions that, that seem to come up fairly frequently. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Neil, and hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Roundtable. Be on the lookout for more podcasts in the coming weeks covering a range of fire and life safety-related topics.